Between December 2018 and January 2019, over a million fish died in the Murray-Darling River Basin. Bonny herrings, silver, golden perches, and iconic records, especially the bigger, decade-old ones. When looking for an explanation, some blame the drought, some others the politicians, the green algae, or the river basin irrigators. But you know what? They may all be wrong, because I might be the culprit. Me? The other 33,268 registered customers on Australia's number one water market and clearinghouse platform? Or that Canadian pension fund that owns 78.1 gigaliters of Australian water. Does that sound crazy? Then hold on. The Murray-Darling is Australia's largest river system. Flowing across four states, it irrigates a river basin home to almost 3 million inhabitants and produces 40% of Australia's food. But even the largest river of an arid continent is still quite water scarce. And just give a sort of sense of scale. So more water flows through the Amazon in a day than flows in the Murray in a year. Scott Hamilton is a researcher and policy advisor. He just released a book he wrote with Stuart Kells, Soul Down the River. There's a link in the description. So it's a massive difference. If irrigation on the Murray River has a 70,000 years history, the first modern attempt at it was found in the 1880s when farmers fought a severed drought with water trains. This led to the building of the first reservoirs, wares, and channels under the direction of Alfred Deakin, Victoria's chief minister at the time. The entire water supply and irrigation Scheme was inspired by Dickens' investigation trip in the US, emulating the approaches he had discovered in Arizona, California, Colorado, Kansas, or Nevada. His Irrigation Act aimed at maximizing the yield of the Murray Darling's best soils located upstream of the Barma Cho, a kind of natural bottleneck that separates the river in two. Dickens' legacy wouldn't stop with the irrigation infrastructure and water allocations. He also warned everyone the right to use water should adhere in the land to be irrigated and water. Water rights should go with land titles. That's common sense, come on. Who would go against this? <laughs> For a century, things stayed as is, with farmers irrigating their parcels with their allocated resources and punctual arrangements. At that time, there was some informal trading. One farmer may have had a little bit water left over and another farmer needed a bit more. So he'd say, well, you can have a couple of megalitres of water for a slab of beer. Yet, things were about to change with the 1980s. Ah, the 80s. Michael Jackson's Decade, The A-Team, the first Star Wars trilogy, and Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Milton Friedman, and free market economics. Everyone was, I think, on the bandwagon of thinking that markets are fantastic. And if markets are fantastic, why not trade water as a commodity? California had been the first mover by launching its water trading market in 1982. It would be followed in the US with Colorado River water trading in 1988, while down under, water trading began in 1983 in New South Wales and South Australia, and in 1986 in Victoria. On the paper, it was very promising. Suppose you were a Murray-Darling farmer. Unlike your neighbors, you invest in state-of-the-art irrigation tools so that you end up needing much less water and have some some of it left on your allocation. You can now go on the market, sell that surplus to your neighbors, and cover your investment costs for upgraded irrigation. Along the same line of thinking, if you had to choose between various possible applications of your water allocation, you would for sure pick the most valuable one to maximize your return on investment. What's not to love about that? For two decades, it seemed to work quite smoothly, even if the market ended up being underused. By 2000, less than 10% of basin irrigators had ever conducted a water trade. But 
but a revolution was around the corner with the Millennium Drought. The Millennium Drought was the worst drought that we'd ever seen. And what that was the beginning of is the impact of global warming. So this massive problem and what was seen as an elegant solution, going into the market and going harder and quicker and further than any other nation, we thought that we'd be able to deal with this problem. Remember Deakin's recommendation not to separate water from land? Well, from 2004 on, this was history. Water rights were unbundled into four separate components. In 2007, water was officially uncoupled from the ground in Victoria, followed by South Australia in 2009, while it took New South Wales 14 years from 2004 to 2018 to fully cut the cord. And God, was it efficient. By 2015, 78% of Bassin irrigators had now conducted at least one water trade. Right. But that still doesn't explain how a Canadian pension fund ends up being the largest owner of Australian water. And what is probably more of a problem was the actual allowing other players to come into the water market. You could own and trade that water now. That means that people who are very sophisticated, the boiler rooms and Enrons of the world, starts to think, maybe I can have some arbitrage about this water trading. What we created was a paradise for arbitrage. In the Big Short movie, Michael Burry predicts the collapse of the US housing market and makes a big profit over it. But if you've been watching the movie's ending attentively, you must have noticed this. All his investing is now focused on one commodity, water. This is actually not fiction, but a true story, and many bankers, hedge funds, and traders have been massively following that advice. In the case of the Murray Water Trading, banks were even seen as a positive influence at first, as they would act as liquidity providing middlemen. But that didn't last. What are these finance professionals doing in an irrigator market? <laughs> well, what they know best, buying when the market is low and selling when it's high. This arbitrage Scott mentioned seconds ago. We changed the market fundamentally from being natural resource market into a financial commodity market. We've created this opportunity worth literally billions of dollars for hedge funds and the smartest guys in the room. One of the worst things about this part of the story is that we then didn't regulate them. When it launched, the Australian water market wanted to emulate the US approach. Indeed, you can go to Wall Street and actually buy water. Water is not traded per se on Wall Street. What is traded is its future price. Remember Nicolas Leiravello? He's the founder of White Stack Investing. Let's say you take a microbrewery in California, right? This guys need water to craft their IPAs. With the droughts going on, they might not be sure to get this kind of water. What they can do is go to these exchanges and get a water delivery contract. They buy the water today to be delivered in two years. So you see, the US were confident enough in the markets to trade water, but still place some limitations as you don't directly trade the physical goods and as water and land never got unbundled. But those limitations literally exploded in Australia as everything that was left in terms of regulations gradually vanished after the unbundling of water from land. For instance, interstate transfers were eased up, then deregulated. And water trading didn't happen just on one platform, but on over 30, with 70 different water market products available and off-market trades over water brokers to spice things up. You can have markets and they can be useful, which we would still say now, but you've got to have integrity behind those markets. You've got to have fair playing fields. You've got to have good information. And was that the case on that market? Not at all. On one end, you had professional traders armed with bots, tools, 
superior experience and information and deep pockets. And on the other end, you had farmers with desperate water needs. Suppose you're a trader and the market is at an all-time high. Would you buy water? Of course not. But now, suppose you're a dairy farmer in that same high market and your cattle need water now, otherwise they die. You have to buy water. There's no other choice. Hedge fund can push the individual farmer or the irrigator to their maximum willingness to pay. And they can do that every time. Now there's a difference between water as a commodity and your regular Coca-Cola share on the stock exchange. You can't just store it virtually in your wallet. This leaves you with two choices. Leveraging the high market's volatility. In the early years of water trading, price movements of 1,000 to 2,000% within one year were common. Or bank your water up to sell it back later. To do that, you now need to have a physical foot in the Murray River Basin. And that's how industrial scale farms started developing in the lower part of the river below the Barmachoke. Between 1997 and 2018, the total irrigation in this area doubled to reach more than 81,000 hectares. Even more surprising, those farms started to extensively grow almond and olive trees, which also doubled. Why? Simply because an almond tree won't die from one day without water. It may be a low return crop, but it's the perfect fall snows for water trading. The cherry on the cake being that it allows you at the same time to communicate around how you green a desert. As a result, the farms above the choke started having financial difficulties with the ever-rising price of water. One by one, they began to close. But the same infrastructure and fixed operation costs divided by consistently fewer farms became an unbearable cost for the surviving ones, which in turn also had to close. That devil's circle totally changed the river's equilibrium. Before that, you would have irrigation in the upper part and the river then behaving as a river on the rest of its course. But what happened as we started to artificially move more water from above the choke down to below the choke, we had this cold water pollution. So because you're taking the water from the bottom of the dam, it's not the right temperature in order for fish to spawn. To understand how this exactly led to that million fish dying downstream, we have to understand a river management mechanism called low flow. There were times in the year where the river was fully dry, and so fishes were dying every year. Georges Walter is the environmental director of the Orin Departmental Council. He's in particular in charge of rivers and dams, and for 33 years now, He's my dad. As industries needed that water to cool down their processes, they also had to stop. Treated wastewater discharge was also becoming problematic, as without dilution, it was poisonous for aquatic life. To avoid this, we are adding water during the entire dry season, which usually lasts from June to November. But of course, you need to stock this water up before. The concept of low flow is not new, but what changed is our sensibility to aquatic life. So low flow became more important because society expects better environmental treatment today than 50 years ago. New regulations were introduced as well, but in our case, we didn't wait for them. There was a collective will to invest in bettering the environment. And let's be honest as well, if we were only driven by financial indicators, nature and the environment would probably not be privileged. The thing is that when they first designed the Murray Darling water market, the regulators didn't include any water provision for low flow. They hoped the market would regulate itself and sufficient amounts of water would keep flowing at any point in time. When they realized this wasn't happening, they entered the market on behalf of the environment, spending, for instance, $3 billion in 2008 to buy water and water licenses. The Murray Darling Basin Plan followed in 2012 with a $13 billion investment to recover another 2,750 gigaliters for the environment. But already in 
2008, Senator Barnaby Joyce expressed how limited of an impact this would have. This purchase is probably not going to do very much, if anything at all, to relieve the pressure on the lower lakes, aka exactly where those beautiful maracods ended up belly up. Without sufficient environmental allocations, the river had stopped flowing, which spurred a blue-green algae bloom. When cold water from the uphill dams reached these areas, the sudden change in temperature killed the algae, which dropped to the river's bottom and sucked all the oxygen. The trapped fishes had nowhere to go and suffocated in place, killing one million of them according to the official count. Between October 2019 and May 2020, over 60 fish deaths events like this one have been reported to the Basin Authority. And this extends to the overall food chain, with water bird populations reduced by 70% over the era of water trading. And just when you think it couldn't get worse, there was still another consequence to the shift in river flows. And the other sort of issue that happens there is you actually have to force a lot more water through this part of the river system and that has massive impacts in terms of scouring of the bank. The local indigenous group in this area had to move a burial ground because the bodies started to come up. So what's to remember from that water trading story? Well, first, that apparently Michael Burry was right again when predicting that water would be the new oil. If you had invested in Australian water 10 years ago, you would have made a similar plus 500% than with the subprime crisis in the big short. Then, that this profit for some came at the expense of the environment, the economies, jobs and lives of traditional farmers and the secular equilibrium of a river basin. And finally, that it's not over, as everyone, you and me included, can still enter that market as we speak, even from the other end of the world. In Sold Down the River, Scott Hamilton and Stuart Kells close with four problems that shall be solved to correct that market. One, it must reduce the tendency towards corruption. Two, a new water model needs to address the stark power imbalance between groups of participants. Three, the water model needs to reflect the multiple values of water. And four, a new water model needs to recognize the tendency for financial returns to dominate economic ones in the basin. Then, water may effectively end up flowing to its best if not, the money and the water flow to where the most money can be extracted from the system. If you'd like to further explore the topic of water trading in Australia, listen to my full interview with Scott and get a copy of his book. The links are in the description.